Let me just say that for the size of the group, there is no one who sings like you. In fact, you sing better than some of the churches that we visited that have 400 people in it. And, uh, and don't try to pick out which one. I, you know, just don't do that. So let's just take it as a blessing that you sing really well. The second thing I want to say is thank you to Chris and Naomi, and, and uh, we'll see when the children come back in, but uh, uh, David, if you would be prepared to cue that third to the last song, uh, perhaps we'll sing it at the end again if you're open to it. That song really does express so much uh, what this passage is about. Uh, it, we, it was a, pr- a song of prayer where we invited Jesus to come set his rule here on earth and to unveil why we're made. Did you catch that phrase? Unveil why we're made. And I, I was thinking about that in relation, so, so thank you. Now also just in addition to what Chris said about worship, I once heard Robbie Zacharias say, and I think this is really profound, that the answer to the issues that we face in life, the, the besetting sins that plague humanity, Lust, jealousy, envy, but particular lust, and whether that is sexual or not, the answer to that is not more discipline. The answer is worship. Because our hearts are looking for something. And so the answer to that is worship. Both individually and corporately. So we are at the stage in Nehemiah. Uh, We are in an exciting stage, but there is also a battle here. Uh, We're we're going to do something a little different. We're going to break in at chapter 6. We're going to break in at verse 15 and read a verse or two there, and then we'll we'll back up and and cover some of the others. Uh, Nehemiah 6, 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Eliel, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Stop and think about those two verses. So the wall was finished in 52 days. Now there's still a few uh, gates to set and doors to set, but this is two and a half miles of wall that surround the city. Remember, it's kind of a footprint-sized. It's narrower at the top and comes down and widens out like a footprint is the size of the wall. But the the circumference of the wall is two and a half miles of wall they finished in 52 days. And that is amazing. uh, But we kind of need to get a sense of the previous chapters and think about what they faced in in doing this. Uh, Chris talked about the burden of Nehemiah. I, I took notes, and I went back to those notes, and, and everything just kind of fits together. When he, when he talked about Nehemiah's call, and how that called, how his burden turned into a call, and, and then he says, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 11, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So it was put into Nehemiah's heart by God. The burden is put on to Nehemiah. The call is put on to Nehemiah by God. 
What is it that God has put into our heart? And then Chris talked about, uh, well, actually, let's return to that song they sang, Unveil Why I'm Made. Nehemiah suddenly understood that this is his calling. This is his space, and he needs to move into it. And then Chris talked about the opposition, deception, derision, discouragement, those kinds of things, and then how that Nehemiah's prayer, fasting and prayer, unleashed the power of God, and suddenly the king, not only is Nehemiah going back, but the king is funding everything. It's this kind of miracle that happens in those first two chapters. Nehemiah's relation, leadership is built on his relationship with God and the clear burden that God placed on him. Then we, we also heard from Sam a couple weeks ago, and Sam talked about how they build together, how they actually did the process. Remember Sam's thing about next to them was, and next to them was, and next to them was? And that's how we build a church. No one person, no leadership team can successfully build a church because they are not complete. It takes all of us building together. It's how the kingdom of God is built on earth. And so rather than criticizing other groups and other places and other people, we come next to them and we build together. And we understand that in the ecology of God's kingdom, it's, this, is, this is something that is both individual. I need the people around me to build together. It's something that is corporate as a church, that we need to, to understand that God has called these pieces together to build this. And then in a greater sense, the kingdom of God on earth is built as God's people take their place, their small place on the wall, and they put brick by brick by brick in place. And there's this guy, uh, Jerry, who does the hinges. And, and, and Kendrick does, he makes the gates that fit into the hinges. And, and one of those, the hinge and the gate, you, you wouldn't have any space for it if you wouldn't have Dwendal who, who laid the blocks up beside it and all the way around. And so in that way, we built a complete kingdom of, of God on earth. It's how we bring the kingdom to earth. And, and Sam laid that out really well. And, and as I was thinking about this, I, I, I was thinking about the, the fact that Nehemiah here is, uh, in 52 days they built this, and what it did to the, their enemies. Their enemies got scared because they perceived something. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. I love that. Fell greatly in their own esteem. Boy, suddenly they didn't look as good as they thought they were. That's exciting. Because who's looking good here? The kingdom of God. Now there is a piece to the kingdom that doesn't look quite as good. And it goes right on into it from there. Actually, I think we'll pick it up right there. Uh, we'll, we'll just uh, read. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Now, who is this Tobiah guy? He shows up in these uh, weird times throughout this. So many of the nobles. So these are the leaders, the rich, the wealthy, the big shots. And these big shots are writing letters to this Tobiah guy, but who is he? So go back to verse 1 of chapter 6. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had... Wait, the rest of our enemies. Who is Tobiah? He's one of the enemies. Who's writing to him? Some of the noblemen within Jerusalem. 
That's not how it's supposed to work. But anyway, uh, when, when they had heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let's meet together at Hakapathirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the walls. And according to those reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Uh, by the way, this, the last time king is mentioned there is not the king that is set up in Jerusalem. It is King Artaxerxes, the supreme ruler. There is a king in Judah, and now the king or the emperor will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have, you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I like that one, too. For they, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will be, not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delai, son of uh, Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the, temp the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. We'll stop there and we'll just think a little bit about the things that Nehemiah faced in these 52 days. Now, I would just like to go back, well, I'd like to go back and just think about the fact that he also faced, in, in chapter 5, last week we talked about oppression. He also faced some internal dissension that was happening within, in the oppression. And I, uh, last Sunday was a good Sunday, but I ran out of time. And, and so I think I need to say something about last Sunday yet. So when we think about oppression and think about how Nehemiah handled it, when, when Nehemiah was faced with depression, oh, depression, yeah, right, oppression, he said, I was very angry. And then he said, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And then he shook out the folds of his garments. So he got mad, and he stood in the face of it, he called it what it was, and he said, if you don't change, you'll be shaken out of the kingdom. And I think, and I said that last Sunday, but I, said, I think, that we need to very carefully think as a group what have been the ways that we have oppressed people in the past. 
Because kingdom building and to build the walls together does not work if there is an element of people within our segments who are being oppressed by the very people who are building the kingdom. And I think that in, our, uh, in, in the last 200 years of our history as a Christian church, that, that we have often oppressed the poor and those who are racially different than we are and women. There is a reason that the feminist movement arose, whether we agree with it or not. I'm not going to tell you whether I agree with it or not. That's beside the point. The point is, who have we oppressed? And if we have oppressed women, and those who are poor, and those who don't quite meet the standards we, are, we do, we need to say that needs to stop. And therefore... As we go forward at Providence, one of, the, one of the goals that we have is to give everyone a voice. And in order to do that, it's going to look different, if we want to really be honest, than it has looked over the past 200 years of church history, because we need to make those changes. And God is calling the Christian church everywhere to examine themselves and ask themselves the question, have we been the oppressor? And where we have, we need to stop. Now, so, so, we, so he faced that in those 52 days, but he also faces a lot of opposition. And the opposition here is, is very directed. The first set of op- opposition, by the way, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Uh, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. He, was, uh, he led a group of uh, mixed-race people who were partially Jew and, and partially not. Tobiah was an Ammonite. And Geshem was an Arab, but probably a tribe of Bedouins who, who had been pushed out by the Jewish conquest. Now, there was also kind of an unholy alliance because Sanballat, one of the grandsons of the high priest during this time, Eliashab, had married Sanballat's daughter. And Tobiah had married the daughter of a Jewish noble, and his son had also married into the Jewish nobility, And Tobiah, by the way, leased a storeroom in the temple. He leased it, it says. He leased the storeroom in the temple. And later, Nehemiah is going to deal with that because that was the place where they were supposed to keep the tithes. And and this man, the enemy of God's people, is leasing space. And he has access to the goods of the Jews in that leased space. There are some really interesting twists here. And they had, they had, the Jews, who before Nehemiah had given that, Nehemiah is, is about cleansing as well. Now, the first set of pressures, the first set of opposition that Nehemiah faces is the pressure to give in. I couldn't think of a better word. On the, on the surface, the request seems like an appropriate measure. It's four times they said a letter down saying, hey, let's gather together, let's have a summit. Let's all get together and talk about this. And Nehemiah is busy. And he understands he's got to get this done in a limited amount of time. And he's very busy. And and so he says, uh, uh, I can't come. And he kind of blows them off. You notice what he says. Uh, They say, I sent a messenger to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And uh, can you imagine when Sanballat and Geshem and and Tobiah said, let's, let's try to get him down here. So they sent this letter, official seal on it. 
The first four were closed because they had the official seal. And this is like a big royal seal. These are big shots. They send a note down to this guy doing this thing down there. And they say, we'll get him up out that way. And then we'll deal with him. Nehemiah understands that they want to kill him. And says, come, come on down. Come on down. Let's have a summit. And Nehemiah says, uh, I'm busy. I can't. And then he sends a messenger back. And, he says, and they say, I'm busy. I can't. By the way, that's happened before uh, other times in history. There was once a summit of Anabaptist leaders led by a young man. And he uh, and the oldest bishop refused to come. And uh, they sent uh, somebody to fetch the oldest bishop. And he said, I can't. I have hay down. It created a split. The young leader was named Jacob Amon, by the way. Um, But that's beside the point. But he just kind of blows them off. And it it ticked them off. So next, the the fifth time, they sent an open letter. An unsealed letter. And, And there... What they're doing is, is, is saying, uh, Nehemiah understood, by the way, in the first four, he says, they intended to do me harm. And then he says, I'm, I can't come down. I am doing a great work. Nehemiah always returns the attention back to what he's doing in the kingdom. I can't because of, I'm doing this great work. Uh, so, so there's that opposition that is, is built like that of, of pressure. The second one uh, the fifth time they sent the letter, the second kind of opposition, they send an open letter down, an unsealed letter that everybody can see, and this letter says uh, it slanders Nehemiah and accuses him of treason. They, they say, you know what, if you, we understand what you're doing down there. In fact, we've got wind of what you're doing. We understand what you're doing. When people began to say, I think, uh, I understand what you're doing, and it's, it's always negative, and they're questioning your motives, you should stop right there. Slander is absolutely deadly anywhere. But it is especially deadly when you're trying to do something. And, and Nehemiah, uh, this, this word comes down, it's slanderous. It says, uh, uh, you want to be the king. And pretty soon the emperor will hear of these reports. Why don't you come down and let's take some counsel together. Let's have a meeting and talk this out. Nehemiah comes right back and says, you're inventing these things in your own head. I love that answer. Because when we are slandered, and I have been, and you may have been too, when we are slandered, one of the challenges is what to do with that slander. Because uh, there, there, there may be more than this, uh, this about, uh, there may be more ways than this to respond to slander. One is you can do nothing. Uh, the second thing is you can try to explain it. And, you, and, and that's what they wanted. They wanted him to come down and try to explain it. And when you have been slandered, when people have slandered you, and you tried to disprove that slander, all you're doing is digging a deeper hole and helping them. Because everything you say can be disproved by them because they're the prosecuting attorney. They've figured out your motive. And instead, Nehemiah just says, that's not true. And I'm sure that Nehemiah wrestled with, well, what are they going to do next? Or what if the people believe this? 
or all that. Because he prays at the end of verse, this is a powerful prayer, at the end of verse 9. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hand. You know, when we're faced with this kind of opposition, we have to just kind of, sometimes we have to say, God, that's not true. And we tell the people who will listen to us, that's not true. And we keep going. Their tactic, as is often the case with slander, is to raise questions about Nehemiah's motives. Huh, that's why he's building the wall. And I'm sure you've faced this as well. And when those kinds of things happen, they are terrifically damaging. You know, the Jewish rabbis say that slander and gossip kills three people. It kills the person that they're slandering. It kills the person doing the slandering. And it kills the people who listen to the slander. And that is so true. How can we, just here, think about each other in a different way where we're not constantly questioning each other's motives? And we, we begin to see through people and say, you know, sometimes what they do I can't figure out, but it's okay. They're in the kingdom. They're doing something. So Nehemiah faces the pressure of giving in with the four letters, and then he faces the pressure of slander, and then he faces the pressure that we read about of, of trickery. Um, apparently, Shemaiah was a prophet, a recognized prophet, and he tells Nehemiah to barricade himself in the temple. And Nehemiah, so he tells him, why don't you go into the temple and let's you and I go in there and we'll lock the door. Now, what do you suppose this Shemaiah was going to do with Nehemiah in there when they got in there? I'm sure that if Tobiah had access to the temple, that they were not going to end up in there alone. And Nehemiah's response is classic. He says, should I run away? And then he says, wait, I can't do that. Because who was supposed to go into the temple? Who are the only people that's supposed to go into the temple? The priests. Nehemiah isn't a priest. He said, I can't go in there. These people were trying to trick him into taking a position. Then they could say, ah, oh, look, he went into the temple. Nehemiah says, should a man such as I run away? And should a man such as I go into the temple? And he returns immediately. Then he says, in verse... 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. And so the wall is finished. It's because Nehemiah <clears throat> was willing to stand in the face of that opposition and keep going. And as I thought about that, and as I thought about our own lives, I, I had to think about the fact uh, that, that all of us have a calling in the kingdom. All of us are Nehemiahs. God had an, a wonderful opportunity when he created you. When I look at you, you all look a little different. Some of you look more alike than others, but you all look a little different. 
I'll pick on two that look kind of alike. Um, one of them is a visitor that's a terrible thing to do. But uh, Michael, Andrea, and Melissa. This morning, Melissa was back here with her children and, and bent down, and my mouth opened to say, Andrea, they look alike. They share 99% of their DNA. Actually, 99.5% of their DNA are the same markers. Actually, the rest of you are the same way. There is only half of 1% of your DNA is different, and that makes you, you. By the way, we also share 95% uh, of our DNA with chimpanzees. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll let you deal with that. But anyway. So, so, but in that half percent, God has created us all different. And those differences are beautiful. And God has given all of us a calling, just like he did Nehemiah. The calling isn't your job. The calling is maybe why you do your job, but the calling isn't your job. The calling is what God has placed on your life to change the world, to build the walls, to do something that is uniquely you. And, and I, I was thinking about that. Each of us is created with a purpose and so designed that only you can uniquely fill that purpose. When God created Jerry in his mother's womb, he said, I need a person like that 50-some years later to be here right now. And the same with each one of us. And no person ever fulfilled their calling in life, the unique God-given calling for you. It may be to change this. It may be to change oppression in the world. It may, there are a lot of different callings. Let me just tell you mine. A number of years ago, I was in a men's conference in Colorado. It's the only time I ever heard God speak audibly. And I'm not much for the mystical, charismatic stuff, but this, I got mystical and charismatic here. Number one, I went, and when I got there, I thought, what in the world is it? What am I doing here? Um, it was 9,000 feet up, and I could barely breathe. And, uh, and it was this group of, uh, you know, several hundred men at a men's retreat. And I, and I heard something way off in the distance, and I suddenly realized it was the music. And it was head-pounding and loud, and I had a little bit of altitude headache anyway. And I go into this place, and th there's a hundred several hundred men worshiping in here and this guy gets up and speaks and it was powerful and I began to think about my own life and journey and my own place in, in the kingdom of God and it, it was good but I was still kind of reactionary and uh, I just didn't really want to talk to anybody and we stayed in this bunk house with all these other guys and I thought I was dreading it so badly and I, I tried it every time they'd say take a break I'd just go away and uh, and and I, I heard all the voices in my head. You're just a small... You, what, what are you doing, you little Amish boy? What do you think you're doing out here? I heard all those lies and those voices repeatedly. And then they had a man speak about calling and God giving you your own unique purpose and place in life. And he talked about growing up with a, 
a very abusive father, which is so different than my story. If anything, my dad was absent. And he was talking about this, and I heard my name over the loudspeaker. And it, it's unique. Narita is one of the few people in the world that call me Mark occasionally. And my, my parents did some, Mark. And they said my name. And I kind of looked around, and nobody else was looking around. And I thought, well, maybe they're trying to page me. So I looked at my phone, but I didn't have very good service. So I thought, maybe something bad happened. And I heard it again. And the third time. And I finally looked at the guy next to me and said, did you hear that? And he kind of backed away from me a little bit. And I opened my Bible. And before I had left, Narita had given me a bookmark. It said, Mark, a defender of the faith. I began to cry. Because I suddenly realized that God was giving me this call, this space, calling me by my name to rise up in the kingdom of God, giving me a burden, giving me a heart. Night has been clouded many times. That's my space in the kingdom, my calling. And if you think that that has been without opposition, the opposition that has come to that mark has all struck right at the core of that. You're a stupid, worthless guy. What do you have to say? What, why did you say that? Why are you doing that? Why do you waste your life doing just on and on? And then temptation comes. And when we are given a calling, we should expect opposition to that calling. Because that calling is going to bring Jesus' kingdom into this world. And when you and I are given a calling and a space and a place in the kingdom, when we commit our hearts, we can, that calling can come alive. It's different for everybody. And sometimes it's cloudy till late in life. But ask Jesus, why, what, what have you called me to? What is it that you are calling me to? It's not your job. Your job may be how you do it. <clears throat> and, and let me just also remind you that Jesus is about building down, about uniting and bringing together. And the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy so what are the factors that we can take away from here that, that enabled Nehemiah to stand and do what he did? Number one, he never forgot his own calling and he knew where he belonged. And when you can embrace your calling, whatever that is, it will give you strength. And then he had a great awareness of the task that God had called him to. When you become aware of the space and place that God has called you to, God will give you tasks. Some of them may seem mighty small, but you'll never know how they change the world. He did not let others influence him. I wrote this in for myself. One of the things that I learned this past week again about myself is that others' expectations for me often come far ahead of God's expectations for me. And when I worship other people's expectations over God's, I'm an idol worshiper, and I cannot fulfill my calling. And then, 
the last thing Nehemiah that I want to say. So he had a great awareness of his, he had an awareness of his calling, and he understood that God had given him the burden. Secondly, he had a great awareness of the task that God had called him to. I need to go do this, and I'm not going to be delayed in doing it. The third thing is he didn't let others influence him, even the leaders of the land around him. The fourth thing is then he went and did it. The things that God has called us aren't always building walls of Jerusalem. Sometimes they're fasting, just like Nehemiah. Sometimes they may seem mighty small in the scope of the kingdom, but you will never know. It is something really big when God calls us to it. As a prayer, David, do you have this song? Chris, are you ready? Your family ready? Come on up. As our closing prayer, um, this one here, yes. As our closing prayer, let's pray this by singing it together. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. And just think about the words, and it is a prayer song, so pray this back to God as we close. Stand.